about death is uncomfortable. We think if we don't talk about it, it won't happen. Sadly, this isn't true. It's the only thing in life that we can be certain about. And because we don't talk about it, often we don't know what to do when we experience the death of a loved one. My name is Fiona Garvin and this is Deadly Serious Conversations. I'll be talking to a range of people who will share their knowledge and experience so we can learn how to make dying part of living. October is Pregnancy and Infant Loss Awareness Month, which means we all have an opportunity to learn about this very sensitive topic. As a society, we don't like to talk about uncomfortable and difficult things. The discomfort that accompanies stillbirths leaves many parents feeling alone with their pain. We need to learn to be comfortable with uncomfortable conversations. We are slowly changing the culture around baby loss, but no parent should ever feel that their child is an uncomfortable subject. It is incredibly important that we start to learn to talk about this. In reality, all of us have the potential to be touched by stillbirth in some way. I'd also like to acknowledge that I have never lost a baby. As someone who has not lost a child, I cannot even begin to understand what it is like. My contribution to this episode is based on my experience as a funeral celebrant, as someone who has supported families who have experienced the death of a baby. One in six babies born in Australia every day are stillborn. It's more common than we think. The numbers are just staggering and it is still such a taboo topic. But behind every statistic there is a real person. Behind every statistic there is a story. No two people or families' experience is the same. Each family's experience will be very different, but I'd like to welcome Brie, who will share her family's experience. Brie is the mother of three children, Archie, who is stillborn, Hunter, who is now four, and Harlow, who is now two. So I hope everyone can learn something from this conversation. Thank you, Bree, so much for joining us today. Firstly, I am really sorry that Archie has died and that you had to go through this really very difficult experience. But do you want to tell us a little bit about your pregnancy with Archie? Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, look, my my pregnancy with Archie was really straightforward. Actually, it was my first pregnancy. We fell pregnant really easily. Um, it was really textbook. I mean, I had no morning sickness um it was it was relatively easy the only thing that kind of popped up through the pregnancy was uh, I'm, I'm quite a tall person and and people kept saying to me gee you're not very big are you you're really small and I think oh yeah it's because I'm tall you know I'm obviously carrying different to what other people do and my my sister-in-law in particular kept saying it and was like what are you measuring like you know what are you your fundal measurements and I didn't even know what that was so I was kind of like oh, I don't know um so that was something I brought up with my obstetrician was you know am I too small and what what is this measuring thing and he kind of assured me that I wasn't and that he measures with his eyes and his hands and so um I was well within the the normal range um so right up until about 36 weeks it was all kind of smooth sailing um and then I noticed a change in Archie's movement so for anyone who's been pregnant, you know, they get into a bit of a rhythm and I noticed that he wasn't really moving until kind of later in the days and it seemed to be getting less and less and less. So that was something that I was a bit concerned about um, and, I, and I went and spoke to my obstetrician about that as well at one point um, and was reassured about that. But aside from that, it was a very straightforward pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, firstly, how did you decide on Archie's name? Had you picked that beforehand or did you know he was going to be a little boy? Yeah, we did know. We did find out that he was going to be a boy, which was really exciting. So my husband had kind of planned fishing trips and, you know, all these soccer games and everything that you can possibly imagine with him. Um, We actually chose the name Archer for him and we knew as a kid he would get 
Archie. So then when he passed away, we kind of decided to put on the birth certificate Archie because he would eternally be a, a little boy, you know. He would never have that name that we pictured he would use more when he was older. So, um, yeah, that was kind of uh, an unintentional um, name really. And so, Bree, when did you realise that something wasn't right? Yeah, so towards the, towards the end of the, the pregnancy, as I said, the movement changed. And I, I went to the JIT to, to my obstetrician on a Friday afternoon and I said to him, you know, I'm really concerned because the, the movement's changed, it's slowed down. And he kind of did a quick ultrasound, checked the heartbeat, said the heartbeat was fine and um, basically just reassured us that everything was okay. And then the next morning I woke up and as soon as I woke up, I knew something wasn't right. Like he wasn't moving at all. Like normally if you kind of poke and prod your stomach, you do it enough, you annoy them, they'll move to kind of get away from you basically, I think. And I was doing that and nothing was happening. And, you know, I remember eating ice cream for breakfast to try and like give a bit of a sugar kick to kind of um, wake him up a bit, which I know now actually doesn't work anyway. Um and, and so it got, I kind of like was waiting and I had my baby shower that morning, would you believe, um, like a brunch thing. And so I went to that and then I came back and I said to my husband, I still haven't felt him move. And so we went to the hospital um, to get checked. Uh, and obviously that drive was, well, one of the worst of my life. Um, and so as soon as we got there, they they got um, the CT the CT, I think it was called the trace. Um, gosh, my brain's blanked. The, they were trying to trace the heartbeat and, you know, I could see in the midwife's eyes that she was struggling to find it. And they then got the ultrasound and confirmed that he had passed away. So that was at um, about 37 weeks. So I was full term with Archie at that point. Yeah. And so then what happened next, Bree? Did the hospital send you home um, with the intention of coming back the next day or I think my memory like I mean this was six and a half years ago for me but I think my memory they gave us the option of going home and I was just like but to me personally I know some people want the time to process that but for me personally that was just my worst nightmare like going home and still being pregnant and you know and, and knowing that nothing was normal um so that i decided i my initial reaction was let give me a cesarean get this get it all happening i want it over and done with really quickly and they were very adamant in convincing me to not have a cesarean which i now understand but at the time i was horrified by but it's because you know you're going to be grieving going through all this mental trauma and so if you can do that without at the same time recovering from a massive surgery then obviously it's better for you mentally and also cesareans limit the amount of babies that you can have so I guess not knowing at the time what caused this or what the future would hold for future pregnancies and births they try and get you to have a natural birth so that it doesn't then take up the space of you know what of carrying a future baby if that's the the path that you want to go down so we ended up staying in the hospital um, and they induced me um, straight away. And when the baby isn't alive, they do a different type of induction that's quite, um, well, because there's no risk to the child. It's just a lot more uh, intense and, and quicker generally. Um, but yeah, so anyway, I think I found out in the, at lunchtime, that he had passed away and I think by the afternoon five o'clock or something they'd already started inducing me so um yeah I ended up having him naturally um when I say that I mean vaginally not I took all the drugs um but yeah I mean look it's in in hindsight it's kind of it's almost a rite of passage that I'm glad I did with him um but I assume would be different for everybody. Um, yeah, and so obviously the actual birth itself, it's, it's a hugely traumatic experience because you, you picture that moment for nine months, if not your whole life, really, and the baby coming out and crying and instead the baby's born and, just, and it's totally silent. 
And also you don't know what you're about to see. I mean, I was so naive to stillbirth and I was like, oh my God, like, is this baby going to come out and have all these things wrong with it? When of course he didn't, he was totally perfect. Um, but yeah, and thankfully I say we were gifted. We were gifted this counsellor. Straight away the, the hospital organised a counsellor to come and speak to us as soon as we found out that he passed away. Her name's Deb DeWild and she's won an Order of Australia for the work that she does with um, stillbirth and neonatal um, death. And she is just like a saint and just guided us through the whole pre-labour, explaining everything, post-labour. She was there for the birth. She's subsequently been at the birth of my two other children actually, which is amazing. She's a big part of our lives. But when Archie was born, you know, she kind of took him and bathed him and wrapped him up and gave him to us. And um, she really facilitated all those things and gave us everything that we needed before we even needed it. Like we were so lucky to have her there. I can't even put into words. And it actually pains me to think that not everyone in that situation is that lucky. Like I've heard so many horror stories about people who they just have some pamphlets thrown at them basically about how to deal with loss and grief and stillbirth and they're you know I've heard of terrible things that have been said to people in, the, in those situations so I feel that we were so protected and so well looked after by her in particular um, that we were just so fortunate so we then uh, yeah so gave birth to him we then spent the night like uh, oh, actually when was he born sorry we then spent about five or six hours, I think, with him. Um, for me, you know, I know that some people spend days with him and it's funny, like, in hindsight, you do all these things like I, I'm like, oh, maybe we should have spent days with him. But at the time, it was what felt right for us. And when he was born, he was this perfect little, you know, boy. And then after five or six hours, things start to change a little bit. You know, they start to look a little bit different um less alive shall I say and when that started to happen for me I was like hang on I want to remember him being this perfect little baby instead of seeing the deterioration happen really so at that point um we kind of left but then in the subsequent days went back and saw him every day anyway up until the funeral so um you know we spent we ended up spending a fair bit of a fair bit of time with him, but leaving the hospital without a baby um, is the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Like you get in the car, you've got the car seat in the car. Like I was due to have him, um, so you know the car seat was in the car. You go home to the nursery's all set up, the nappies are there, the everything is ready to go um, without this baby, and just like these constant reminders in your in your face and. My whole world just crumbled. I honestly thought I would never be happy again. I, I was just like, I'll, I will never smile again. I'll never laugh again. Like it was just the most horrific kind of loss because you prepared for the rest of your life to be changed, you know, to be different and include other people. And yeah, it was just horrendous, total um, heartbreak. And I suppose, Brie, as well, like when you're pregnant, especially with your first, I think back to my first pregnancy, you just never imagine that something like this can happen. I, I, I don't know if I was naive like that, but it's just not something that you're ever, you ever think of. Yeah, look, I mean, I, I guess stillbirth was definitely not on my radar. I will say that I'm quite an intuitive person and I did have a lot of fears and thoughts. Like I felt like it's a really weird thing to say, but I never actually pictured taking taking him home. Like it, I always feared that something was going to happen, but I didn't know what. So it wasn't like I was specifically worrying about, to be honest, I didn't even know what stillbirth was. In my head, I thought that stillbirth meant that a baby died during birth, which isn't the case. Stillbirth, you know, they can die, you know, they can die during birth, but basically stillbirth is a baby that doesn't take a breath and doesn't survive outside of, you know, the womb. Um, and stillbirth, is also different to miscarriage, which is often confused because especially overseas, there's different terminology and they call stillbirth miscarriage in America. So I think, you know, miscarriage is before 20 weeks and stillbirth is after 20 weeks when a baby is viable for life, basically. So um, 
I very much never specifically feared that, but I guess feared something going wrong, which I think is pretty normal for people carrying babies because it's so out of your control. You know, like there's this little baby in there and you don't really know what's happening. Yeah, you get ultrasounds. But if you've got a straightforward pregnancy, you have like two ultrasounds and they're both over by 20 weeks. And then for the next 20 weeks, you don't know actually what's going on in there. And that's why now I think they've, they've introduced you know, scans at 32 weeks um, as a normal thing. And I think that's really wise because it's a long time to, to not know what's going on. But you're definitely not prepared. And stillbirth is something that's so taboo and people don't talk about. And I do a lot of work with the Stillbirth Foundation and that's something that we're trying to change. You know, you go to your prenatal classes. I went to those at the hospital. They teach you how to bath a baby, change a nappy, they talk to you about the risks of Down syndrome, which are so much lower than what equally is important to understand these things. But this, the, the risk of that is so much lower than what the risk of stillbirth is. Six babies in Australia a day are stillborn. It's two and a half thousand a year or something. The numbers are shocking. They haven't changed in 20 years. It's higher than the national road toll. And you drive around and there's billboards everywhere telling you not to drink, drive and what the road tolls are. And there's you know, advertisements on TV at Christmas time and Easter talking about the road tolls, but no one wanted to talk about stillbirth because it made people scared and it made people uncomfortable. And let me tell you, I would much prefer to have an uncomfortable conversation when pregnant than to deal with my child dying. And I think that's what people need to get their head around. And I think they should be talking about in prenatal classes, if there's any change in movement, like I had both of the warning signs that something wasn't right and they were ignored. That is reduced movement and growth restriction, both of which I had. When Archie was born, he was 2.1 kilos. He was under the 10th percentile. He was far too small. Um, had my growth been monitored or had my concerns about his movement reducing been taken seriously then he potentially well he would he would be here it's not even potentially he would be here because there was nothing actually wrong with him we ended up having an autopsy done and there were blood clots in the placenta and that was the cause of his death so there was nothing wrong with him it was something wrong with the placenta so had those things have actually been picked up and he had have been induced early or taken out early then he would have been perfectly fine um, and that was one of the hardest things to kind of swallow um, and to kind of, and to, you know, stop being angry about. Um, but yeah, that's the unfortunate part. And I think if this information was given to people um, in a better way while they were pregnant, then it, you know, things would, things would change. And that's why they're trying very hard to get these messages across. Yeah. And so with the health professionals, you spoke about your intuition. Do you think that your intuition was dismissed because you're a first time mum? Like Definitely. I think first time mums are treated like hysterical women, you know, and I think that's changing as well. And it's definitely not all health professionals. Um, but I think I think you're made to feel often when you're pregnant, like you're a nuisance if you're worried about things. Um, and I think that's really unfair. And I think there's some amazing obstetricians and midwives out there, but there's still some that have the wrong um, attitude towards pregnant mums and first time mums in particular. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's education as well. Yes. Yeah. I think perhaps we need better education in this area so that health professionals do have better training so that they can help support a couple like yourself and Evan a little bit better. Agree. And so when Archie was born, did the hospital support you in any way to remember him? Did you get an opportunity to take Yeah, well, Deb DeWild, who was the counsellor, she did handprints, footprints. Like, I mean, she did all these things without even asking us because... I mean, even if you don't want them at the time. And I remember her saying that, you know, some couples 10 years later would be like, oh, I wish I had photos of him. And she'd be like, yeah, I took some and kept them in case you ever wanted them. You know, she's just that sort of person that literally knows what you need before you do. We were offered heartfelt photos, which at the time we said no, because we were feeling very kind of insular. Um, but Deb was taking 
taking photos already um, on a good camera. So we have all those photos of him from her and ones that we took ourselves, um, but not the heartfelt ones, which I just think is the most amazing, amazing charity. Yeah, and for um, who doesn't know what Heartfelt is, they're a beautiful volunteer organisation of photographers who who take beautiful photographic memories of of little stillborn babies and and children who are very seriously ill and and they work with the hospital so yeah it's incredible and look I mean there's a few things that I now know about that I wish that I had have actually got like I know that there's some beautiful jewelry you can have made with like fingerprints and things like that in it so I wish that I had have known about those at the time but you know hindsight's a great thing and then a lot of these things have probably come about in the last yeah. you know six seven years as well yeah and that's the thing we don't know you don't know what you don't know so you're relying on other people to guide you and it sounds like they've done a, an amazing job in, mm. in doing that. again in fairness to them too which I totally get like so I, I think I said to Deb one time I wish I had this or that and she's like you know it's such a fine line because you don't want to look like you're mark- giving people all these like marketing yes information or you know imagine like you're like oh would you like this would you like this would you like people don't want to hear that and they don't want to almost feel like they're making money off the situation you know so it's whatever feels right at the time you know and we at the time such a strange thing like at the time my mum really wanted to come and see Archie and as did you know my my husband's sister who we're very close to and we actually no one else came to meet him or see him and at the time it was partly because we were so bonded by it as a little trio that it was not wanting to let anybody else into that scenario but also I think I was so concerned that people would be freaked out by the situation that I was wanting to protect Archie from that And now I look back at that and I'm like, of course they wouldn't have been. I think I was so scared of the whole situation and I just wasn't wanting any, uh, yeah. And especially like my mum, like my mum would have loved to have met him. And now that's the one regret that I have is I really wish that I had let everyone meet him and, and not been so over the top trying to protect him from that or from, you know, other people's fears, I guess. Um, but you can only do what feels right at the time. Yeah, that's right. Um, some families do decide for many reasons to keep it really private and intimate and, and just such a sacred time as well. Mm-hmm. And Brie, grief can really affect us all in very different ways. And in those initial days and weeks after Archie died, how did grief affect you? God, it just shut our lives down. It really did. Like when I think back to that time, I just picture, and it's, it's such an, and it's not even a, a real memory, but I picture myself sitting in my lounge room in the dark. And I think because it was coming into winter, it was cold. And I was living in a terrace house, which obviously doesn't have a lot of light. <laughs> and so my memory of it is this really dark, like sitting, just sitting in this one spot all the time, which I'm sure I didn't do, but I obviously spent a, a lot of time there. And it was, it created, it almost gave me like agoraphobia. It really did because there's one thing about losing a baby and having a stillborn baby. Most grief is invisible, right? Like if if your partner or your mum or your sister dies, you don't walk down the street and people know that that's what's happened. And unfortunately with stillbirth, being pregnant is so visible. So everywhere you go, People are like, you had the baby. And I just had such a fear of that situation um, that it had a huge effect on my life for months. And it went on, it went on for probably years, to be honest, of people have having that conversation. I mean, obviously I got a lot more used to it and was fine dealing with it after a while. But you know, I didn't want to go back to my hairdresser. I didn't want to go to my favorite coffee shop at the end of my street. I didn't want to go back to work. I didn't want to go just anywhere, you know, running into neighbours and things like that because it was the same thing over and over and over again. And, you know, I'd explain what had happened and then I would end up consoling them because they were so uncomfortable in the conversation. Um, so they'd be apologising. I'd be like, oh, it's okay, you know. And so, and some people were just horrified and didn't deal with it very well and others 
more amazing, obviously. That's just life. Um, so really, I mean, and on top of that, you you should be going home and learning how to be a new mum and instead you're going home and planning a funeral, which I, I just feel like I did not at all have the capacity to do. I feel like my husband picked up a lot of that and also Deb, the counsellor, who was there daily, um, I think guided us in a lot of ways, like introduced us because I was just like, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to do this. So she introduced us to people that she, that so she's had, you know, 15, 20 years at this point of dealing with parents of stillborn babies. So obviously she had people in her connections that were particularly good at dealing with these situations that she introduced us to. So you know, funeral directors, celebrants. Um, I remember going to the funeral home and like trying to pick out an urn because we had Archie cremated and I was so horrified by all the urns because I just thought they all looked like they were for old ladies. And I remember saying that to her and she then was like, oh, there's actually this company that make um, beautiful like tea light candle holders they're like porcelain porcelain I think it's called the yeah. porcelain iron company yeah. yeah 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 the porcelain company and so she you know she directed us she showed us that and it was perfect so you know we were just lucky to have someone there to facilitate to figure out what we needed by what we were saying to them and then facilitate these things for us because I just yeah I wouldn't have even known where to start and I definitely did not have the mental capacity to do it yeah yeah it's such an overwhelming time and and trying to make decisions like you mentioned about funeral directors like I know just a reminder of how important it is to take your time because all of those decisions just take so much of your mental capacity mm. you can't think straight you may find yourself making a decision because you feel rushed to to have to do so I think it's also really hard and unique with stillbirth because like this is your child and you feel so connected to them but also you have no memories with them so trying to choose things that you think are appropriate or like if it was somebody that you'd spend a lot of time with you'd know what they liked and didn't like and you know you could really personalize a service whereas I feel like because you know the loss the memories that you have of them inside your stomach it made trying to make the service personalised quite difficult and at a time when you want it to be so personal and so special for them, um, yeah, it was hard. Yeah, and I you know that's the role of the celebrant as well to bring some of those ideas to you because mm. you you don't have the capacity to think what you can do and how you can make it personal. So, you know, if the celebrant can work with you to give you suggestions and give you ideas and, and make it feel really personal. And Archie still has a story, you know, and his story for the nine months that he was in your belly and, you know, sharing that. But also, you know, I hear it a lot. A lot of people say to me, oh, how can you have a funeral for a baby who didn't live that funeral is as important as any funeral for someone who lived 105 years old. Mm, absolutely. It's all a rite of passage, right? And it's process and it's like, what What then do they expect you to do? Like when when I say that we cremated him or, or we bury, or, or, you know, for some people when they bury them, I've, I've had so many people be shocked that you actually do that. And it's like, well, what, do, what did you expect us to do with him? Yeah. Yeah. And I think legally in Australia, if a baby is born after 20 weeks, you are required to bury or cremate their little body. So whether you have a funeral ceremony as such is entirely up to you. And some families yeah. choose to have that as a really intimate farewell. Some choose not to have a funeral ceremony and just do something privately, like plant a tree in their memory or whatever. And that's that's very personal as well. But you can definitely create a beautiful ceremony if a family choose to do that. I have created ceremonies where we've got family to write the baby a letter and, and that can be shared publicly or it can be shared privately. You know, often parents read an open letter to their baby and you know, just bringing your community together is very important so that you can share your grief with them and, and they can try and support you if, if that's what you want. 
Definitely. And like some, our celebrant suggested choosing a flower that had quite a strong aroma. We had everyone in the family, you know, lay lavender on, on him. Um, we had one of those little nests. Have you seen the nests that they have? Yeah. Um, and, and I actually really like that now because every time his birthday comes around, which is also obviously the anniversary of his death, um, we get lavender in the house. So, you know, that's, that's nice. And I usually, because the whole time I was pregnant, he was, he was born under the summer that I was pregnant with him. The January was so hot. So I spent most of the time down in these rock pools at Maroubra in Sydney. And so I usually try to go back there on his birthday and, you know, either put some lavender into the sea or go for a swim or do something like that. So, you know, you create your traditions, right? Mm, yeah. And that's a lovely anchor point for you and your family. Um, yeah. Just to, to bring you back and acknowledge Archie and um, as part of your family. And so, Brie, you mentioned earlier about the sadness that you felt and you didn't ever imagine being happy again. And I know nothing or no other children can ever replace Archie, but you've gone on to have two other little kids, Hunter and Harlow. Do you talk to them about their big brother? I do. I do. Well, actually, particularly Hunter, who is older. So he's four, four and a half. And only in the last kind of six months, has like I've always talked about Archie, but only in the last six months or so, maybe 12 months, has he started to ask questions, be more interested in it. He found a painting someone did of Archie and he was like, look, mum, it's, it's a painting of me. And I was like, actually, that's Archie, that's your brother. And that's what started the conversation where he first became quite interested in it. And so now, um, it's, and it's really hard to have a conversation with kids that little about death. Like I find it really difficult because he constantly says, well, where is he now? And I don't want to say, well, we cremated him because trying to explain what cremation is to a four-year-old, to be honest, sounds like a horror show. Um, so I often, some really dear friends of ours named a star after him. So I often say that there's a star named after him and we talk about him being the star. And I feel like that's probably age appropriate at the moment. Um, but he, he definitely, he brings it up a lot, like more and more, the more, the older he gets. And he'll often say that he wants to see him or meet him. And when can we do that? So he obviously doesn't, you know, totally understand the finality of it all um but I'm just glad that there is a, a conversation about it because you know I didn't want them to get to being you know 15 and then all of a sudden find out that they have this brother that we don't talk about because talking about him is all we have now and so I embrace that and I think you know a lot of people think that you should shy away from mentioning their name and talking about them because they fear that they'll upset you but I feel like him being totally forgotten and ignored is far more upsetting for me than talking about it. I also talk about it a lot. Like I do a lot with the Stillbirth Foundation and stuff like that. So I, I'm very comfortable talking about him. And obviously that's not for everybody. But for me, I, I quite like it. Yeah. Yeah. And continue to say his name. I think that's one of the big things for a lot of families who've had a stillborn baby is people being afraid to mention their name you're never going to forget that Archie died by and so by bringing up his name you're not reminding you of anything that you don't know like absolutely him. not yeah, yeah good point and Brie so with Hunter and Harlow when people ask you how many children do you get do you find that question really difficult I find it so hard still how many children have you got because either way and to be honest I pick and choose my moment like depending on the day, depending on how I'm feeling, depending on who is asking the question, depends on my answer. So sometimes if I feel comfortable or like the person can handle it, I will say three and explain. Uh, but more often than not these days, I say two and then feel guilty. Um, but it's, yeah, it's hard. It's hard because if it's an acquaintance, you often make them quite uncomfortable. And then like I've said, like I said previously, you end up reassuring them. And I'm just like, do I want to put myself through that uh, that situation? But 
yeah it just it changes all the time but it is a question I hate yeah it's a tough one and a bit like that conversation just after Archie was born when you walked down the street and the absence of your your baby bump suggests that you've had the baby and you know doesn't suggest that anything's different no absolutely not yeah and yeah did you after Archie was born did you find any sentiments from people unhelpful like did people say things that just were insensitive or yeah definitely I mean look I was really fortunate that I think 95% of people were amazing um but there was there was a couple of people um I think there's always a few of them but you know I, I very much found the notion that people would often say well it's probably a good thing because obviously there would have been something wrong with him that's not necessarily how they worded it but essentially almost like it was genetic selection natural selection because there was something wrong with him when I knew that there wasn't because it was a placenta issue Mm. and even still I wouldn't agree with that terminology even if there was something wrong with him you know oh well it's probably a good thing because otherwise you would have had a child with something wrong with it um so there was always that kind of sentiment that I didn't like I also had I hated people that had the approach of chin up don't let this define your life type thing Mm. that hard tough love approach I always found quite offensive um yeah but I mean even my obstetrician at the time like I hadn't even I hadn't even given birth to Archie yet and he like patted me on the leg and said it's all right we'll have you trying to get pregnant again in a few weeks and it's like do you really think that someone who's just been pregnant for nine months like that and is losing their child that that's what they need to hear you know like there's certain yeah there's I think you know there's certain people that are insensitive and don't understand it even if the best of intentions are there yeah or even yeah those platitudes like everything happens for a reason or totally annoying yeah or yeah when are you going to try again or at least you know you can get Mm. pregnant and I think the reminder is any sentence that starts with at least doesn't work so hard pass on that one yeah and and I think that everyone around us desperately wanted us to fall pregnant and have another baby really quickly because they thought that would then fix the problem and then you know then you're okay which I mean obviously that does heal a certain part of your heart but it by no means fixes anything and if anything it creates even more problems because you then have the anxiety of being pregnant is the same thing going to happen again? The unknown, trying to handle that. And then when Hunter was born, I was hit with this whole new wave of grief because taking him home and having that first time experience, mum experience with him really made me realise everything that Archie had missed out on. I mean, I knew it, but then you're living it, you know? And I had weeks of when Hunter was first born of just like being consumed by thoughts of Archie and guilt and really understanding what we'd missed with him. So it's something that, you know, definitely having another child doesn't mend that totally. Yeah. In some ways it it helps and in other ways it really doesn't. Yeah, yeah, well, because you're constantly reminded, you know, even at the start of a school year, when you see the kids going back to school and you see pictures of all these kids mm. that are returning to school. Absolutely. Like that, if that's the year that your child was due to start school, like that's a mm. reminder. You're just constantly reminded on what you yeah. and Archie have missed out on. With the point of trying to fix the situation, as humans, we're always trying to fix whatever we can. And often people mean well, but they'll tell stories about cousins, friends, brother's wife who had a stillborn baby and how yoga and massage helped them to feel better. And people are always trying to project what they think will fix you. And I don't know if this happened to you, but there's also an expectation that once you've had a funeral, that you start to move on with your life do you think society tried to push you back into resuming some sort of normality I don't think so look I don't think I really felt that pressure to be honest um I stayed off work for about six weeks I think and then I went back just part-time a few days a week my husband went back after two weeks and I still to this day don't know how he did that um 
full time back into his his job, uh, which would have been so hard. Um, so I definitely didn't feel pressure to do that, but I was trying to get some sort of normal back into my life, I guess. Um, yeah, I more felt the need, everyone's desire to, for me to be okay and happy again. Like I constantly felt that from everyone. Yeah. And just, you mentioned about your husband going back to work. Like I often think to myself, even though dads may seem to be quietly getting on with things and, and return to work, but they also need support too. Do you think a lot of the focus was on you? Yeah, definitely. And I think my husband felt that at the time too. Um, I do think that also is changing very slowly. Yeah, I definitely think my husband felt that at the time too. And I do think that's slowly changing. Um, but I think for the woman, to a certain degree, I get it because you're both going through the same loss. But on top of that, the woman is going through this physical recovery as well. So therefore, some of the, a lot of the attention naturally goes to trying to help that mum who is, you know, for some people, they're lactating, they've got milk, they're, you know, on top of that, you're either recovering from a birth or from cesarean. And so there's all those physical things on top of the emotional. So obviously there's another layer for women, but when it comes to the actual grief and loss, it's the same loss for both of them. I, I know that some men don't feel as connected until the child is born, but a lot of men do. So I don't know. And I think a lot of husbands and wives or partners grieve differently when any loss happens, but particularly the loss of a child. Um, I was very fortunate that we were very connected and it probably brought us closer together rather than further apart. And I'm so grateful for that because I can't imagine having the stress of that on top of the grief. It just would be unbearable. And I know that so many people are often in that situation I know that a lot, a lot of people, I mean, it's not an unknown fact that some men, but women as well, don't like to talk about emotions and feelings as much as what women do. That's just where inherently different. Obviously, that's something that the world is trying to change. Um, but I think that would make it really hard. Like I've got a couple of friends now that I'm really, that my best friends that I've met through the Stillbirth Foundation and other avenues who've lost children the same way. One of them in particular, husband just would not talk about it or acknowledge it at all right from when it happened. And I think that was so hard and ultimately led to the relationship breaking down. And I think the pain of that and then not having your, like I, I'm so glad that I'm still with my husband and we share him you know so I then think if the relationship breaks down and then you don't you know don't have that person that you share Archie with or whoever their child is I think that would be so hard so I feel really lucky that we were brought closer together through that yeah and this is a good conversation to remind us that not to forget about dads to offer that support they may not know what they need just to to reach out and, and make sure they feel supported as well definitely yeah. And just uh, talking about support, Brie, as humans, we find it really hard at the best of times to accept help. And by saying to someone, let me know if I can help for someone grieving the loss of their baby, trying to articulate what they need, what will help them at that time is just impossible. Were you surprised by the support that you received and how did your community show up to you? Oh, definitely. Look, my friends and family rallied very much so. Um, I think the one thing that I probably found really, aside from physical company when I wanted it and sounding boards, you know, because I'm a real talker. So for me, talking about things was my therapy outside of my actual therapy that I got. Um, but I, for me, I think people dropping off food in the early days was probably so helpful because otherwise I don't think I would have eaten. I was just... I probably just would have not eaten and instead I was like nibbling on things that people had dropped off so I think that's always really helpful and you know just being there when 
people need it, but also not being there and in their face too much, which is a hard balance. Yeah, that's right. And I think one of the other things as well that a lot of people are afraid of is they think that you need space and time. But if all of your community think that you need space, then you mightn't have anybody. Totally to make sure that yeah being there and sometimes that's just being there and not saying anything you know let them be sad and and just uh, you don't have to fill the space with empty words Uh and did that over time was it when you went back to work that that slowly started that support of food and things yeah I mean I think so to be honest I can't even remember how long the food drops lasted (laughs) it felt like a fair while um but yeah I mean I guess you know once you gradually able to um once you get a bit more self-sufficient and actually able to use your brain like I feel I feel like it gave me brain damage for years to be honest I feel like it I just I remember I just couldn't remember anything like I'd be talking to people and I couldn't remember it honestly was like I had dementia couldn't remember if I'd had conversations with them the last time I spoke to them like it really gave me this, I mean, it was probably partly to do with the birth and the hormones and stuff like that as well. You know, people talk about baby brain, and I'm pretty sure that's because it strips you of actual brain cells. Um, <laughs> but, you know, on top of that, I think grief does that too. So it was like this whole compounded um, fog. But, yeah, um, I, look, I feel like I was just, I was well supported for a very long time. Good. Because there is no textbook for this sort of thing. And we're never taught how to sit with someone who's in pain. So this is all new territory for everybody. But I think it's really important that we know that just being present with someone in whatever way that might be and letting them be sad. And we don't know what to say. And saying that is okay. Saying, I don't know what to say, but I love you. And I'm here Mm. to support you. You know, Definitely. And the other thing, I don't know if this, you experienced this, but a lot of the families that I speak to fear that people will treat them differently, that Mm. even though you're sad and life has changed dramatically for you, you're still free. You still want to be included in your your wider community's lives. Yeah. I remember thinking, oh my God, no one is going to want to hang out with me because I'm this sad, boring person. (laughs) which obviously isn't realistic but I was you know what it did fundamentally change me and it changed me as a person look I don't think that's necessarily all bad either mainly but I think there's some goodness that came from that as well in 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 that change um but like I remember going to an engagement party three years after Archie died And it was like this bush dance party and I was like dancing and like, you know, having a few drinks and stuff, which I, you know, I'd stop drinking, I'd stop doing anything like that. And I remember saying to my husband, oh my God, that's the first time I've genuinely like let loose and had fun since Archie died. And it was nearly three years to the day after he died. So it affected me greatly for a very long time. Um, But in saying that, of course, I had happy moments and stuff like that in that time, but it was the first time that I think I had a good time without then punishing myself or feeling bad. Like I remember even like after he died, I was like, I can't wear makeup. People would be like, why is she wearing makeup? She shouldn't be doing that. Like all these crazy things that would go through your head. I don't want to put lipstick on. Happy people wear lipstick. Like I, it's, it was such mind games with myself, you know, and I think it took me such a long time to kind of, get over that and yeah I, I remember having that moment of going oh, I'm okay like I'm I'm actually happy now and and even still now I'm like you know I've got a great life I'm really happy now and I'm so grateful for that and hope that anyone who hears this who is going through the same thing gets hope from that because I remember just after Archie died just devouring the internet desperate to hope find someone to talk to who'd been through the same thing because I wanted to see that they were happy yeah you know? Yeah, or and that, that was possible, and that you can learn to live with your loss. Totally. What about returning to work, navigating work after returning or after losing a baby? Everything feels very familiar, but yet it feels really different. Mm. Yeah. I think it's really hard with the work situation because, like, I went on maternity leave. Like, I was so, 
I was at the end of my pregnancy. So I actually finished work a few days before. So, you know, even like my out of office on my computer, I had, you know, I've gone on maternity leave and I had like a, they threw a baby shower and I left and, you know, then you're coming back six weeks later and I worked at channel seven at the time. And there was like, you know, 10,000 people in the building or something. And so then I then again had to deal with, Oh, what are you doing back here? And like people thinking that I just didn't want to stay home with my baby. I wanted to come straight back to work. And so that was a whole nother hurdle as well um, to kind of, to tackle. Um, but gen generally people were amazing, but it, I, there's no way I could have gone back in a full-time capacity because my brain wasn't working. So I was really lucky that I had the support of, and my husband and I both worked in the same place, which I think helped as well, um, that I had the support of the company and all the people that I was working with, that they kind of really eased me back into it, which was amazing. Brilliant. Oh, that's good to hear that you were supported going back. Mm. Fantastic. Well, Brie, it's always been my goal for Deadly Serious Conversations to normalise tough conversations like this one. And it's definitely an area that I think we need to become more comfortable. Uh, we all have a responsibility to learn and, and to understand more about stillbirth. And so through this conversation, you have helped others to feel less alone. So thank you so much for, to, for making that happen and making it easier to learn how to offer support. So thank you so much for sharing your experience with us. Thanks so much. And I, I do, I hope anyone who's listening, I hope that it's helped in some small way. Yeah. And thank you to Archie as well. Through him, we've all learned a little bit more. So yeah, just to finish up our conversation, have you been enjoying a cuppa? through the conversation I've, I've had a sparkling water actually it's a bit boring <laughs> isn't it do you know why because my my coffee machine broke yesterday otherwise I would have had a cuppa <laughs> oh god that's a crisis I know I can't even <laughs> pop out and get a new one because yeah. <laughs> uh, well thank you so much it's just been wonderful thanks Fiona yeah thank you for sharing about Archie thanks for having me for today's listeners, if you or anyone you know has been impacted by stillbirth, there will be links in the show notes. Mm -hmm.